0: Welcome to The Glovis Show. Here's your host, Antonio Chavez-Borelli. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Glovis Show. My name is Antonio Chavez-Borelli. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Christian Straka. As a professional coach and athlete for over 30 years, Christian has been working with world champions across different sports. He is working as the global mindset coach for Adidas Runners and is also the co-founder of Mindsize Sports LLC. Christian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. Can you please tell me a little bit more about what you do and how you started out?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, um, in short, basically, uh, I help athletes um, train certain attentional skills in a systematic and consistent way. So those skills, everybody has those skills. Um, If you're healthy, you know, as a functioning athlete, um, even if you're maybe physically not healthy, uh, but mentally you um, have been using those skills and training them even, but not intentionally or systematically necessarily. So those skills uh, that allow you to deal with challenges, you know, with anxiety or uh, fear, can be developed your ability to pay attention to what you want can be developed your ability to pick up uh, details that are relevant for your performance can be developed. So those three skills kind of I help athletes understand what they are, um, what options they have, um, how to train them, um, how it would be beneficial for them personally to train them because that is something you have to discover. It's not like a one for all. Um, And then you kind of go on a journey and you start developing those skills Um, really in a pretty similar manner you develop all physical technical and strategical skills you know Um, and then you know they improve to a very high degree.
0: So you gained a lot of this experience as a professional athlete so what was your professional career like?
1: Well I would say I was gaining experience by not having developed those skills and then having realized it later that that was one of the things that like The main thing that was missing for me as an athlete, I had to stop um, my professional career in my early 20s because I had an injury on my shoulder. Um, So I turned into coaching very early around like I was, I think, 21. Um, But being exactly in that position where I see many athletes as a coach also being like, ah, yeah, you have the potential to kind of, you know, play at this level or compete at this level, run at this speed, run for this duration and so forth. But then in reality, you're not really able to uh, get to that level that you know you have and you have competed at various times, but you're not able to uh, access that level consistently. And it becomes very frustrating. And I was a prime example for that. Um, So once I realized that really doesn't have that much to do with your physical skills, how fit you are, how much you want it, you know, your strategic understanding, even your understanding of like, that you should be paying attention, you might understand it doesn't give you the ability to pay attention to what you want. Um, And when I discovered that, um, that led me as an individual, not even as a coach, first to develop those skills for myself, for many years. And once I got to a point where those skills were at a level were were improved to a degree where I was like, wow, that's very different now than it used to be before. Um, then I decided really that's what I want to help athletes with. Um, and I can help much more athletes. I don't have to narrow my focus to one sport or, you know, a couple of sports um, and yeah, been doing that for the past decade now.
0: That's great. So, you know, as a, as a mental coach for runners, what differentiates coaching runners compared to, say, football, soccer, basketball? What are some of the key differences?
1: Um, I mean, there's many differences for sure, right? But um, the main important thing to understand um, what is different between each sport and not just the sport actually between different athletes is what you need to pay attention to. Okay. That will always vary. Where well, what you need to pay attention to as a runner is different than what you need to pay attention to as a soccer player. What you need to pay attention to as a, um, uh, as a goalkeeper, as a soccer player is different than what you need to pay attention to as the, um, as the striker. Okay, so every athlete, every sport, and every situation will determine what your focus range is, so to speak. What do you need to pay attention to? What you should you not pay attention to? Then each sport um, and each person will have different distractions. So um, one athlete might um, experience frequent um, anxiety. Another athlete might be experience frequent uh, challenges when it comes to weather. Another athlete might be experiencing frequent challenges when it comes to the audience, the spectators. Um, The next one might be experiencing challenges uh, in terms of the opponents. So what what challenges you need to deal with is also always different. And um, what details are important in order for you to uh, perform at your optimal level is also varying. So those are the things that kind of differentiate themselves in between different sports right to give like a, a straightforward example let's say if you're running and you're running um a marathon then one of the things that might be important to pay attention to is how relaxed you are throughout the run and what your breathing rhythm is so you're running efficiently okay even a little bit maybe your technique maybe there's certain things that you can pay attention to that will optimize running efficiency Um, but there's not a lot of attention that you need to pay paying to other runners there's not so much attention you need to pay to where you're running the route might be pretty straightforward you know okay maybe a little bit in the inside of the curve but like not that complicated um and There's general strategy, you know, is also relatively straightforward. There is a strategy. You're not running maybe the same pace from start to finish at the marathon. Maybe you want to, you know, speed up, you know, every uh, 25% of the distance. You want to run a little faster than before, but maybe not. But it's a strategy that's not too complicated to understand and implement. When you play soccer, when you play soccer, I mean things change right. Um, the strategy is much more complex. The strategy is based on what the eleven players on the other side are doing and what your ten teammates are doing. Um, the strategy might change depending on um, what opponent you are run, uh, playing um, and now you are really need to pay attention to maybe not so much how relaxed you are, but you need to pay much more attention to what's going on around you. So your attention is not so much on yourself, but more external, right? Um, So those are differences. And and the athletes in the different sports need to understand what is important for them to pay attention to, what is not so important, um, and then learn to not pay attention to what is not important and learn to pay attention to what is important for you. Right. Um, and once you understand that, that gives you the ability to now start to practice that just because you understand it doesn't mean you can do it. You just know what to do. But like in soccer, I mean, you know, you should uh, you have a penalty kick. You know what to do, but that doesn't mean you can do it. You need to practice that. You need to practice the, uh, kicking the ball uh, with uh, enough accuracy under pressure and so forth. So it's, you know, pretty much in the same um, dimension
0: sometimes we are focusing on the wrong things when we're thinking they're the correct things to focus on but when really we should be thinking about something totally different so i'm glad bl- i'm glad you brought that up because it's super important to to understand like maybe we should reconsider what our focus is maybe reflect on it see if we need to change anything if it's working great if it's not try to find something else to focus on and see what happens then Um, You talked about performance anxiety. How do top athletes deal with performance anxiety? Um,
1: Again, um, everybody deals with it differently, number one. And number two, anxiety for you might not be what anxiety is for your teammate. So just because you describe it as anxiety does in no way mean that you and your teammate have the same experience, right? That it's the same thoughts, that it's the, the thoughts are at the same intensity, the feeling of anxiety, the, how intense that feeling is, um, where that feeling is located, what it feels like, right? How much aversion you have to, uh, to that feeling and to those thoughts, that, is, that varies from person to person. And because it varies from person to person, um, everybody has a different method of dealing with it and needs a different method, Right? Um, helpful is to understand um, what the trigger points are, um, what certain mechanisms are that can help you. So there's mechanisms that can help you just physiologically, where you're able to calm down your autonomic nervous system. So you're activating your parasympathetic nervous system. Um, That is definitely one way to um, reduce the feeling of anxiety to a degree okay so anytime you emphasize your exhale over your inhale you're going to calm down your nervous system okay if you feel sluggish you feel a little less uh, energetic you can swap that around and you can uh, release adrenaline into your system in by emphasizing the inhale so you're really kind of um, hyperventilating intentionally you know Um, So that's, you know, mechanisms, protocols that you can implement on that side. And then there's the other side where um, you need to learn to deal with the anxiety that you're experiencing in different ways. So let's just say there's, you don't have the option to eliminate feeling anxious, or even reduce the feeling of anxiety. If that is an option, and you have a protocol for that go for that. Definitely do it. Okay. But the reality for most people is that it doesn't work to a degree where they would feel like, oh yeah, great. And I can only, and, and then there's this uh, additional misconception for a lot of athletes where they are under the, um, under the illusion, let's say that in order for them to perform at their optimal level, they need to, get rid of the anxiety. And as long as there is anxiety, they cannot perform as well as they could without anxiety. And that is the first, or not the first, but one of the bubbles you want to kind of um, burst, that you can learn to perform at your optimal level, whether you are experiencing anxiety or not. And once you realize that, Um, There's much more freedom. It's a really liberating kind of insight for an athlete to be like, ah, I don't need to not be anxious. It's okay. The anxiety can be there. The anxiety is unpleasant. That never feels good. But it doesn't mean that it's going to impede my performance. If I can experience anxiety, let's just say you're feeling anxious and there's like some contracting, unpleasant feeling In your solar plexus or in your throat, it's like somewhat, you know, strangling you. But you can pay attention to what you need to pay attention to, even though the feeling is there. You're not like fighting with the feeling the whole time. You're allowing the feeling to be there. It's okay. It's unpleasant. But it doesn't take up so much of the time of your attention. Okay. And now when you're what you are paying attention to, you're really paying so much attention to it that you're noticing what matters about it. So, you know, when you are uh, playing soccer and um, let's say you're the goalkeeper, okay, you need to pay attention to what you're seeing. Okay. And you probably need to pay attention in a particular way. You don't want to look only at one player, but you need to more kind of zoom out, defocus your eyes so you can see the entire field and you can see patterns, how they're moving and where, where somebody might kick the ball. Right. So now you're, limiting your attention to what you can see. And now you're picking up on those details of what player is moving where and so forth. And while you're doing that, you're allowing the anxiety to be there. You're just not giving it attention, okay? Then the anxiety is irrelevant. So once you engage in these exercises and practices, and that, I mean, you can understand what I'm saying right now intellectually, right? That makes sense. But that doesn't mean the next time, if you ever experience anxiety, that if you would, that you could do what I just said. Even if you remember it, you could try to do it and then you're going to probably have a very hard time doing it because that's a skill to develop. Um, So how do you develop that skill? By being in exactly that situation where you need to use that skill. You can't learn uh, to improve your ability to deal with anxiety and pay attention to what you need when you're not experiencing anxiety. So that's the second shift in perspective that is very powerful for people is, oh, when I experience anxiety, that is actually great for my future. The only way I can learn to, you know, learn to deal with this and perform at my optimal is if I am experiencing anxiety. Because the reality is, yeah, it would be nice if there is never anxiety, but that's not life. You know, (laughs) if you experience anxiety, that's just how it is. So it's not about not experiencing anxiety at all. It is about understanding you can perform with anxiety or not. It is about knowing, oh, there are certain mechanisms and protocol that could help you to reduce the anxiety to a degree. No problem. You can do that also. And that the only time you can learn to deal with it is if you're actually experiencing it. And this shift um, really um, tends to have the effect that you become very motivated and interested in developing this and wanting to experience it somewhat. So all of a sudden you're experiencing anxiety and it's not like any like oh fuck okay let's do this again now shit. But it's more like oh There's anxiety. Okay, good. Now I can practice. Let's
0: see. Okay. I love that you bring up this idea of embracing anxiety because I think that's so important to understand. And also you talked about earlier how it's important to not um, kind of sink your teeth, if you will, into the anxiety, right? You talked about knowing that the anxiety is there, but not necessarily getting in bed with it to a point where you're uh, perpetuating the effects it has on you. I think that was really profound what you said there. Um, I would also say that, you know, if you're doing something in sport or you're approaching a match or a game and you're nervous and you're anxious, that's like you said, a good thing because you know that you're about to perform and you know that all the preparation that you went through, all of the um, practice that you've done for that moment is going to come to light. So sometimes that nervousness, that anxiety is almost an excitement where you're about to do the thing that you have prepared to do. And in a way, um, when you get into that flow state of the game, sometimes that uh, anxiety and nervousness can just go away. It can melt off your shoulders because when you get into that flow, it all just comes very naturally. So to take away from that, not necessarily um, sinking your teeth into the anxiety and, Embracing it and and shifting your thinking around the anxiety to a point where I'm going to win this battle and I'm going to um, experience a positive uh, experience when it comes and I know how to deal with it. And I have the tools and the practice uh, required to kind of conquer it is what I'm hearing you say.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I think um, in just in order to be... Um, not too ambiguous in terms of what you know words we use, is um, I always tend to differentiate between um, using the term, I need to think about something and I need to pay attention to something. Because thinking means you're having content in your mind. It might be auditory thoughts, you're talking to yourself, you hear your coach's voice in your head, you might hear your uh, colleague's voice in your head, teammates, whatever, you might hear just sounds, you know, like a song, uh, or whatever. Um, And you might also see what you're thinking, right? You can visualize something you can see, um, or you might be already realizing, like, what is going to happen in five minutes, or at the end of the session, and you're seeing that in your mind. So when you're thinking, generally, like one of those two things are happening, or both of them. But that is not what I am, have been talking about for this whole time. What I've been talking about is where do you pay attention to? And you could pay attention to what you're thinking about. I can, instead of listening to my voice right now, you can listen to your own voice in your head for the next five seconds and be like, ah, okay, that's interesting what he's saying, yeah? So you're hearing that, right? So in this moment, you moved your attention from my voice to your inner voice, so to speak. So that is the sk- one of the skills that I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, oh, I need to think about like this. And now I need to think about that. Like thinking is content in the mind, right? That uh, is, of course, also very important. I'm not in any way saying that thinking doesn't have its place. Obviously, it does. But not what I'm talking about right now. It's not the skill that I'm teaching. Okay. On the one side. On the other side, um, <clears throat> when you turn your attention to what matters when you're competing, um, that is a strategy that one is using intentionally because you would want to pay attention to what allows you to perform best. If while competing, you would turn your attention to the experience of anxiety. And what that exactly is, is for everybody somewhat different, right? But we know it consists of these three things that I just talked about. It definitely consists of either a feeling in the body, right? Thoughts in the mind that are either auditory thoughts or visual thoughts, okay? That like, if you're experiencing anxiety, it's going to be a combination of those three, okay? Maybe one of them, two of them, or three of them. And the more intense they are, the harder it's going to be to deal with it, and the more uh, you're going to have aversion towards it. When you are, however, not competing, then it is totally a strategy to turn your attention towards that experience, to become more familiar with it, interested in it, to really um, kind of become like a little inner scientist It's like, Oh, this is what anxiety actually is. What is most people, if you ask them, what is it? What is anxiety for you? What are you experiencing? Actually? They're like, I just feel anxious. Like, I don't know. It's just like, I don't want, there's no real in-depth knowledge of like, what is the experience of anxiety actually for you? Same with anger, same with happiness. It's just like, I'm happy. I'm angry, but there's no detail. It's like, Oh Yeah. Anxiety is located in this area in my body mm. and it's as this intensity and it has this, save, this shape and this size and it's kind of tingling or it's just static. It's like a ball there. And then, oh yeah, there's also anxious thoughts in my mind. And generally when I'm anxious, I'm thinking about X, Y, and Z, right? Um, when you don't, you can't develop this understanding of your experience of anxiety if you never really pay attention to it. So there is definitely a place and time for that also, um, but probably not during competition. But I just want to highlight that because, um, you know, that is also an important part uh, of learning to deal with it. And for some people, one strategy might work better than for the other strategy, even though one strategy might not be appropriate in a certain situation. So basically it's the strategy of turning towards anxiety or um, anchoring your attention away from anxiety.
0: <laughs> okay, thanks for clarifying that. Um, I, I want to just ask you a quick question. So, do you think then that ideal peak performance operates in the subconscious? In other words, well, in other words, you're talking about this shift from thinking to performance, where you embrace the anxiety. Um, and you you're different, differentiating those two. So does does then the peak performance or the ideal performance happen when you're in this flow state, you're in this subconscious uh, state where your body is just doing muscle memory, and you're performing based off of that.
1: So there's no such thing as muscle memory, actually, it's it's all neural memory. Okay. Um, so And the subconscious, okay, is basically um, (laughs) has a little bit of (laughs) like, challenging drift to it, let's say a taste to it when people hear subconscious for a lot of people, really, what is subconscious is just, it's an experience in one of your sense category that you're not noticing. That's really all it is. So if something becomes moves from your subconscious to your conscious, mind all that is happening is like you're so it's a thought in your mind let's just say that you're not noticing and now you are noticing it that's it's really as simple as that of course it's much right. more yeah. subtle you know because you can have thoughts in your mind that have been there for 20 years and you have never noticed them so they were subconscious um but really you can become aware of them all of a sudden. And the more you train this ability to notice details, like noticing a thought and what kind of thought it is, is one of those skills, right? Developing your awareness of like what you're noticing. So um, you're not training your subconscious, okay? That would be kind of a, a hard way to describe anything. Okay. We are basically, the, ma- the mind can be, again, mm, let's say, divided into two modes, okay? One is the default mode network that is active, and the other one is the experiential network that's active. The default mode network is kind of the, the network in the brain that is in charge of intellectualizing, thinking about the future, thinking about the past, self-reflection, rumination, all of this right, is uh, the default mode network is in charge of that, and is doing that sometimes you can you can actively engage in your default mode network, you can like start to think about like, I need to think about tomorrow, I have to go to this place and that place and then I have to do this. Okay, so that's your default mode network. And then there's the experiential network of the brain. The experiential network of the brain is the part of the brain that is in charge of paying attention to what you can experience. So you're now just hearing the thought. You're not trying to figure out the thought. You're not trying to intentionally think. You're just noticing that you are thinking. It's another mode the brain can engage in. As an athlete, you're using this experiential network all the time. If you would not be, then you can't be functioning. And maybe, I don't know, that's what you were referring to, subconscious and conscious, Uh, And like thinking and and letting the subconscious be there. It's actually really the default mode network. Yeah. Should not be engaged very much when you're competing, but not, not at all. You need to figure out like your coach is telling you something and you need to like, where do I need to go? What do I need to do? Like you need to engage it, but not that much. Like what you need to understand intellectually, what you need to plan to do is pretty straightforward when you're competing for yourself. What is much more challenging is to not have this default mode network overtake, so your thinking mind, right, interfere with what you need to do, um, and now allow your experiential network where you're just seeing where the players are. You're just seeing where the ball is flying and how it's flying. You're just noticing how you're feeling. That is the experiential network. Okay, experiencing your senses, so to speak. And that is what the athletes train in order to kind of quiet down to a degree the um, default mode network. So it's not that they're not a slave of it, but they can just use it to their benefit. And now they can engage in the experiential network of the brain where they um, allow their bodies to do what they have been trained to do over thousands and thousands and thousands of hours by paying attention to their senses and now just letting the body do the work, so to
0: speak. Perfect. That's exactly what I wanted to get to was that shift from the default to the experiential. And I I haven't heard those terms before, so I'm glad you brought that up for our listeners. Um, This something definitely that kind of describes that shift from um, thinking to just experiencing what's going on in in Mm -hmm. the competition, in the game. So the next question I want to ask you is, um, What, um, what was your experience like coaching professional runner, David Perry? Um, I know you coached him through the Boston and Berlin marathons and, you know, as a mental coach for someone who's professional athlete running in these high profile marathons, what were some of the techniques that you use as part of that preparation?
1: So um, David and me, um, you know, we met each other through Adidas um, and uh, when he started um i mean he already ran multiple marathons and he was a great uh track runner i think he focused on 5k or 10k before he went into marathons um he kind of um already had some experience with mental performance coaching in some aspect like it was mo- mostly sports psychology that um kind of he was uh, engaged in previously and then what we did was I basically, you know, broke down in much more detail what I'm explaining to you now um, over multiple sessions. So he has a understanding and no confusion anymore, intellectually speaking, about, oh, what should he be doing? What should he not be doing? What is helpful? What is not helpful? Once you have this understanding, um, then you enter into the stage of... Um, learning different techniques and strategies. Okay, so a technique, a mental technique always consists of two things. On the one side, it's the focus range, what should you be paying attention to? Is it just one thing? Is that is it just like should you pay attention to my finger only? Right? Or should you pay attention to um, the entire screen? And it includes the finger? Those would be two different techniques already Two different focus ranges, right? Or should you pay attention to my finger and then my face and then my finger and then my face, a third technique already. Right. And then you couldn't change. Oh, are you paying attention to my finger and then my voice? So now you're switching sense categories. Okay. You're from auditory to somatic Uh, from auditory to visual. Yeah. So you have auditory somatic and visual. So you need to become familiar with the sense categories and practice techniques where you pay attention to one sense category and one or multiple experiences within a sense category that are relevant to your performance, right? If you're not practicing that for improving your performance, then you could pay attention to whatever you wanted. And it would have the same benefits in regards to developing these skills. But You know, we are focusing on performance, so it's always going to be limited by what is helpful to your performance. But what it is that he's struggling with, what strategies are um, better for him to use and are more effective, like anchoring your attention towards an unpleasant experience or away from it, that is something that has to be uh, experimented with. Um, Oh, I didn't finish my sentence. So focus technique... Um, is always one part is the focus range, what I just explained, and the other part is the instruction set. So how should you pay attention to it? What should you be doing? So the instruction set would be, for example, okay, you you should be paying attention to my finger for two seconds, and then you should pay attention to my face for two seconds, and then to my finger for two seconds, and then to my face for two seconds. And when you notice that you get distracted, and you're starting to pay attention to what you're thinking about or how you feel, then you try to acknowledge that you try to allow it and you return your attention back to the finger. And then you repeat that process. So that would be an instruction set. I'm telling you what to do with your attention. So the instruction set and the focus range that makes up any technique. And you have thousands and thousands an unlimited amount of techniques because Obviously, the focus range in itself is already uh, infinite. Um, so we basically um, went through a process where he learns a technique. He practices this technique on um, multiple runs, some long runs, some short runs, some interval runs, and so forth, and then um, reports back. Where the challenges? What worked well? What didn't work well? Is there any misunderstanding? Um, And then in the second week, we worked on a second technique. And in the third week, in the third technique. And the fourth week, in the fourth technique. And then we saw, okay, this technique works better for me. This technique, not so helpful for me. And then you can start to kind of tailor um, the techniques for an individual. So um, that individual can use the techniques that they connect with most, that they have noticed experientially of, of most benefit. Are, and take maybe a little less effort. Um, and then also they have options available because when you are competing, even if you have a technique that you love and it's great for you, the chances are uh, only one technique in any given moment is not going to be appropriate. So you need to be able to pay attention to something that you can feel because there is some issue with you know what you're feeling, uh, but you also need to be able to pay attention to what you see. Um, it's not um, helpful to be able to do only one technique, even if you love that technique more than any other technique.
0: Got it. Got it. So some of those examples would include like if you're running five miles and on mile three, your, your lungs start to feel like they're going to explode. So that would be like a feeling. And then what you see, can you elaborate on like what I'm a little confused on that part. It's based off what you feel physically in that, in that exercise and then going into what you see, what, what would be, what would be something, for example, he would see that would be.
1: um, First off it, he wouldn't start to practice only when shit hits the fan because when that happens then, and you haven't practiced yet, then it's too difficult.
0: Right. So So you're starting to
1: practice when things are not so difficult. Okay. Really. Okay. So let's say you're running for 30 minutes, then you start to practice for one minute every 10 minutes. So you do a, Three times sixty-second micro hits, so to so to speak. Uh, okay, that's what we call it. Got it. So you know, okay, at the uh, in the first mile for the first sixty seconds, I'm going to pay attention to um, the relaxation of my body. Is my body relaxed or not? To the degree it should be relaxed when I'm running, and when I'm noticing that there's tension in my shoulders and my neck, oh, then I can relax that tension. Okay. okay? So that would be one technique, for example. Um, the ne- another technique might be, oh, okay, I'm focusing on the visual field. And when my, um, you have the strategy of zooming in on focusing on the, just the finger, or you can zoom out and you can focus on everything, not just the screen, but even everything around the screen, right? So we know now um, with, uh, through scientific studies, that um, if you are defocusing your eyes, you are using less energy. So one strategy during running could be, okay, you turn your attention to your visual field, you actively defocus your eyes, and you're trying to notice just a soft gaze, and you try to allow everything else to be there, whether you're out of breath, or whether there's unpleasant thoughts in the mind. Um, and anything else that you could be experiencing. And every time you get distracted, you return your attention to what you can see and you defocus your eyes. It's the second technique already, okay? So this is, so. but in the first week, he wouldn't be practicing two techniques. He would only do the first one, only relaxing, let's say. Okay, okay? noticing if he's relaxed or not yeah. and practice that for the entire week. And then in the second week, we might be doing the one with the um, defocusing your eyes. And then in the third week, we do a different technique and so forth. And those are just simple examples. Other techniques are a little bit more, have a more um, complex focus range, so to speak. So it's not just one thing that you're paying attention to, and you can choose what you pay attention to.
0: As part of your work, you emphasize the power of a morning routine, Uh, meditation, tumo breathing, an ice bath, exercise. Uh, can you speak a little bit more about that routine and and what is tumo breathing for our listeners that don't know?
1: Yeah, so um, tumo breathing is uh, really what I refer to as the at the beginning uh, breathing a technique that emphasizes the inhale, um, and you you know basically release adrenaline into your system, so you feel more energetic. Uh, people that feel a lot of anxiety, it might not be pleasant for them, maybe not something that you should be doing. You can swap it around and do the exact opposite of tumor breathing um, and you have calming breaths. But uh, generally, um, there's a lot of uh, evidence now also showing how um, these breathing techniques are helpful to not just, you know, make you feel more energetic, um, but really also to boost your immune system, because adrenaline is basically one of the main elements that helps you fight anything that's wrong in your body, so sort of, or, you know, infection in the body. Um, so you're having positive effects through that. So what I do in the morning in my routines is basically um, a routine that helps me function more optimally. So I do anything that I know of that is helpful for my mind, helpful for my body. um, And there's different protocols for that, that I implement. So I do, first, I go out and I kind of expose myself to um, light. So if you um, have like, let's say, depending on how much, uh, how cloudy it is or not, if you um, expose yourself to Uh, sunlight, even though the sun might not be out yet, but the sky sky is, let's say, blue, the the sun went up, Um, you have, uh, at the right time, the right amount of cortisol release, which is helpful for the body, right? So that's not a mental technique, that's really, I don't have to do anything, I can be just like talking, but like, I'm outside, and I'm looking. i do that for maybe 10 minutes. Um, And then I move into uh, the 20 minute tumor breathing technique where I'm doing this um, protocol where you inhale 40 times um, in like a wave kind of shape first to your belly then your diaphragm then your chest and then you forcefully exhale through your diaphragm you do that 40 times then you hold your breath on the last one um, for as long as you feel comfortable not you know doing anything that's risky never do that when you're driving when you're swimming near water or anything because you might feel quite dizzy and tingly and people might hold their breath to a degree where they pass out Um, so be in a safe environment Um, and then I do that for four rounds and then after that I do mindfulness meditation uh, in stillness so when you practice mindfulness you can do that you know, in stillness, you can do it in motion, you can do formal practice or anything longer than 10 minutes, you can do back, you can do micro hits, anything less than 10 minutes, five minutes, 30 seconds. Um, And then I go into a workout, generally around an hour. And then I do uh, cold exposure, either ice bath or cold, um, cold shower. So that's generally like what I do every morning, and then and then I have my breakfast. And a routine like that really is tailored to optimizing, you know, this experience of my life. You know, I have less issues mentally. I uh, have less issues physically. You know, my hormonal levels are more in check because of the light exposure, because of the breathing, because of the meditation and so forth. So um, it's not so effortful to uh, to live. You know, I don't have quite as many... uh, challenges to deal with because i'm kind of taking um uh precautions so to speak you know there's got enough challenges in life anyway and going to come up so i'm just not adding to them so to speak
0: and you don't even have to be an elite athlete to be doing this this can be something any- oh yeah i'm any- not
1: an elite athlete
0: <laughs> <laughs> any- anyone can do in the morning to have a disciplined start to their day that sets them off on the right foot. And over time that can only lead to good habits. And, and like you said, like just a happy start to the day that you're maximizing your human potential, which I love. Um, my next question is kind of a, a fun question. So as a, as a coach, as a runner, um, I'm sure you've been exposed to a lot of, um, fitness watches. So what's your favorite fitness watch and what is like the go-to watch for a runner? Or like, if you're not a runner also, what is, if someone is just looking to get into fitness, what watch would you recommend?
1: I think it depends very much on what data you're interested in and what your activities are. So if you're like somebody who runs recreationally and you run three miles, five miles, 10 miles, like an Apple watch is fantastic. For sure. The Apple watch is pretty epic with all the data it gives you.
0: Yeah, If
1: you are somebody who does longer runs, you know, a half marathon marathon ultras an Apple watch is not an option. The battery won't last. So you need to go for something that is more professional, like batteries life is not an issue. Um, you know, GPS is uh, a more important element for the route tracking and so forth. So then you go more into like Garmin, Suunto, Polar, brands like that um, and then you have uh devices that try to measure you know a lot of other data sets um let's say whoop is one where it's not a watch it's not tracking really how you run but it's tracking especially with the new version basically your blood oxygen levels your heart rate your recovery your sleep and so forth so no. it analyzes um over time data sets and sees tendencies Um, So very different than from like getting a one time uh, uh, data set, like a run from an Apple watch or something, and then seeing how fast you ran or how long you ran, what your heart rate was, the whoop is really more for like, oh, you have been doing this and this and this and this. um, And now you're very well recovered because you have been breathing and you've been meditating and you're running Um, or your recovery is pretty low. And like, you can see what you have or have not been doing. And then there is um, companies like UltraHuman, for example, they have just released uh, a glucose monitor that also basically, um, you know, tries to analyze um, your, through your glucose levels in your body, how recovered you are, how fit you are. Um, uh, and that's also very interesting. That's very detailed. Um, the most detailed Um, but only for certain data. I mean, there's other data that glucose monitor won't track, you know, like the heart rate, but they kind of can work in unison. So like you can have an Apple watch and you can have the ultra human uh, thing on your arm. It's like a little needle in your arm, actually, that you just have there for two weeks. Um, And yeah, so if you're interested in these data sets, it's very good. I am doing it a lot at the, uh, now I'm doing the ultra human uh, glucose monitor. And that's very interesting because it shows you, you know, like, oh, I'm eating this and like my blood sugar level rises. And then what can I do in order to kind of minimize the damage (laughs) of what I ate? Or you can see, oh, I've been eating well, you know, and like my blood glucose hasn't been, hasn't been going up so much. And your glucose levels is not only, um, affected by what you eat and don't eat. It's also affected by how much you sleep, how much you um, drink, uh, how stressed you are, how much you work out and so forth. So it it's quite a, a complex algorithm and it's very informative um, for sure.
0: That's great. That's great. Do you uh, follow a specific diet? Like, um...
1: I mean, um, I would say it's a balanced diet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I eat, I can tell you what I don't eat, which is I don't eat sugar um, I don't eat simple carbs, mm. uh, so you know from regular bread. But it's not like I, I'm not eating bread. I'm eating like waza rye bread, for example, you know. Or um, and uh, I try to. Um, I know more or less how many calories I burn, so how much I need to eat. Okay. You can really uh, not figure that out through the apps, actually, and through all the watches, all all that data is not uh, accurate. You can only figure that out by measuring exactly how much you eat, how many calories that is, and then you weigh yourself. And if you are gaining weight, then you're eating more calories than you're burning. If you're keeping your weight, then you're eating uh, the amount of calories that you're burning. And if you're losing weight, then you're Eating less calories than you're burning. It's as simple as that. It's calories in, calories out, um, when it comes to losing weight or not. However, what is not so simple is um, if you, what you eat, when you eat, how much you eat will determine and and your workouts, um, your metabolism. So you can be um, burning more energy or less. And then that, of course, is of benefit to somebody, right? if they, whatever their goal, they have, right. Maybe they want to gain weight. They want to keep their weight, they want to lose weight, whatever it might be. They want to gain muscle mass, lean body, lean body, uh, lean body mass and so forth. So me personally, I tend to eat four to five times a day. um, And I um, hit like the macros. So I eat carbs, a lot of carbs um, for sure. Um, But, you know, from like uh, wild rice to buckwheat to uh, quinoa, stuff like that. And then, um, fats from, um, either it's avocado or olive oil, stuff like that to a certain degree. And then the proteins, which I do a little bit of protein powder, maybe, and from chicken fish kind of mostly. Um, so yeah, I kind of combine it like that. And when I eat something that's, you know, not nutritious, not good for you, definitely I don't eat any processed foods. That's probably the worst that anybody can do. Um, uh, uh, if I eat something that's, you know, somewhat unhealthy, or I don't drink alcohol really either. Um, then, uh, it would be maybe once a week or twice a week. And that's like, no issue. You know, if I eat ice cream, right. I Everything once a week, but like, if you yeah. eat ice cream once a week, it's not going to be like killing you. Right. Um, it's just more like if you eat ice cream, you know, five times a week, you're going to have an issue.
0: Yeah. That's great. Thanks for sharing that routine and kind of your diet. I think that's really valuable for our listeners who could use that type of inspiration. Um, So we have a few more minutes left. One of the questions I want to ask you as we wrap up is, you know, as an influencer, as a coach, as someone who's passionate is to change lives and to kind of help guide people, what needs to change in the space of sports psychology? What do you see as one of the main reasons people underachieve or don't reach their full potential? Um, it's a good question.
1: Um, I mean, I don't really think that there's something going on right now that is you know, fundamentally wrong where like people is like, you need to change this. It's just, there's a lot of people that don't realize that through systematic, consistent training, you have the ability to develop these attentional skills to a degree that you will be able to perform at your optimal level much more often and for much longer. Um, And it's really that realization, that information that people either don't have or don't believe yet. So if there's anything that I would wish uh, that would happen is that people know that. And then if they want that, They can engage in these practices and they can, you know, um, have have helped through programs, online programs or teachers or teams and so forth. Um, But other than that, I don't think I don't see anything that, you know, all the people and teams and companies that I've worked with where I'm like, this is wrong. Like what you guys are doing is not helpful. I mean, there is. What I'm doing is helpful. Uh, It's not the only thing that's helpful when it comes to mental performance coaching. There's other uh, protocols and other perspectives to be had that are also helpful. And it's all good. It's all to help people, help athletes. Um, So I'm very hopeful um, to see in which direction it has been going and it continues to go. Um, And yeah, just kind of, you know, helping people become more aware of like what is actually possible like to help them unlock their full potential.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing. I I definitely agree with that. I don't think that, you know, some people just need that extra, that extra belief from someone else, you know, that it's possible to um, kind of achieve their dreams. And I think what I've been seeing lately is a lot of people putting limits on what they can achieve and what they can do when Really, it should be limitless. Limits only exist in the mind. So, you know, the more that we limit ourselves on what we think we can achieve, then we will be the sum of what we believe that we can achieve. But you know, like you said, if there's no limits, if people can just see that they can do it, then that's a powerful that's a powerful perspective and a powerful mentality. So, um, I well, I mean, I would say there are
1: limits. You know, I mean. It's also just physiologically, genetically, like there's people that, you know, can practice basketball as much as they want um, and want it as much as they want and believe they could do anything and they will never play as good as Michael Jordan has played. You know, it's just like a fact. However, um, that doesn't mean that they cannot improve to a degree where they would have thought that's impossible. So there is a differentiation, I would say, between what you think, your limits are, and to give yourself the chance to unlock your full potential. But your full potential is not necessarily limitless on a a physiologically level, a physiological level, you know, I mean, uh, there's people that can train a marathon perfectly, and they will not break the two hour marathon mark. It's just, you know, there is a limit. But that is not something negative necessarily. Um, And as long as you don't try, um, you will not know. You just think you know. Okay, so you're having a thought in your mind and you're believing that thought. But it's based on nothing, basically. It's just based on what you were thinking before.
0: I agree. Yeah. Well, Christian, thank you so much for your time. I really, really enjoyed that conversation. I learned so much. um, And I'm sure that everyone listening uh, also learned a great deal. So thank you very much for your time. i um, looking forward to uh, following you on your journey with uh, your different projects and companies and best of luck in the future. Thank you for you too. Thanks for having me, man. Have a good day. You too. Bye.
1: This is The Glover Show.